Adcom presents the A-Game podcast hosted by Jeff Culleton and Nadia Shiner. Today, we're talking about ABM, account-based marketing, with Justin Morcel, Adcom's new COO. Most recently, the CMO of a Fortune 500 company, Justin has unique insight into B2B marketing. In today's conversation, we cover whether and how account-based marketing can be both intensely targeted and cutting edge. Good afternoon from the banks of the Cuyahoga, and welcome to the newest episode of the A-Game podcast. Today with me, uh, as always, uh, my right hand and, uh, and, and straight voice throughout the entirety of the process, Nadia Shiner. Hello, Nadia. What's up? Nothing. What's happening with you? I'm the Ed McMahon to your Johnny Carson. Oh, I like that. Uh, and, and new face on the podcast, partner and chief operating officer, Justin Morsell. Justin Morsell, how are you today? Doing fantastic. Thank you. This is how does it feel to be in the studio? How does it feel to have, have the cans on ready to go? I mean, ready to rock over here. So Justin's voice will be one that we hear a lot on uh, the podcast coming up, but just coming off of the NFT series uh, that we did that I think was interesting because it's very forward looking. So that series about things that, you know, potentially are in the future, um, how they're going to manifest, so on and so forth. And I think we're going to try and juxtapose that with a new series um, on something that's very near and dear to our heart, but is, you know, best practices for B2B marketing. Sometimes doesn't get as much sizzle uh, as some of the new bleeding edge stuff, but is A, deeply core to our business, and B, is something that many, many marketers go through. And so the topic for today uh, is going to be account-based marketing, ABM, uh, as it's been known in many forms or fashions over time. Um, I actually would at some point like to get to that issue of like why why not so much sizzle why isn't it sexy you know you could just put a pin in that for later you put a pin in it for later Mm -hmm. let me write it down in Mm -hmm. my notes here um man it is a good question though isn't it It, it's like a lot of things in life uh follow the money and you've got your answer so if you think about just broadly where are people spending it's b2c right it's consumer packaged goods it's quick serve restaurants electronics automotive not necessarily selling plumbing fixtures to contractors, right? Like there's just, there are areas that have big audiences, big spend, extremely competitive, and quite frankly, B2B in many cases just isn't that. Does does B2B kind of limit the amount of creativity you can apply? It inherently shouldn't. Yeah. In fact, in a lot of ways, it, it instead of dropping a big stone in the water to make an impact in like one very finite place, you actually have to in some ways be more creative about how you lay breadcrumbs out uh, across. Now, societally, we, we thrive on instant gratification, which B2C in a lot of cases uh, offers to a marketer more than B2B does. Um, so I think in those cases uh, it does, but our attention spans have also lessened so deeply that on a B2B side, or excuse me, on a B2C side where we're trying to reach a consumer, you just ha- it's a frequency play. You just have to be in their face. Um, and so what that, you know, what that kind of brings into um, the marketing side of things is psychology. Like what makes people react to a message? And you know, is it emotion? Is it humor? You know, insurance is inherently a boring <laughs> kind of thought process uh, or, or product as it is, but you see Progressive and State Farm and Travelers in all state with some of the biggest marketing budgets in the world. And they're also almost to a fault using humor to get through. Um, so 
All right. It, it, it's interesting. I don't, I don't think there's a one singular answer. Uh, I think it's a lot of things that have happened over time. But yeah, the budgets skew so dramatically uh, in larger organizations. So also one of the reasons um, that uh, it's neat to have Justin on these is, you know, he's had, you know, a, a, a very, very significant budgets to work with in the past. So his point of view on that kind of stuff is interesting and has run a marketing organization that had a B2B and a B2C side. Yeah, one thing I would add to it, I think as you think about measurability, B2C side is always going to be a bit easier. Large audiences, generally speaking, short sales time. In some cases, it truly is a media gratification from message to e-commerce platform to sale. Um, and as a marketer, and then ultimately, if you're thinking about your CEO, CFO, they love to be able to see that very measurable, very tangible return, which again, easier to do on the B2C side, um, certainly not impossible on B2B. There's definitely more intricacies. Sales cycles tend to be much longer in many cases. You are going to get into some level of debate and negotiation between the marketing and sales teams around who did what when. And, and so again, it's not quite as clean, not as easy to point to, um, to say that, yes, I've driven a tangible return and therefore I've earned the right to ask for larger budgets, more people, greater mind share, so on and so forth. So I'm not sure if you meant to make this as good an on-ramp into this, like if you, if, 100%. This, was an, if this was an Easter egg that you yeah. were just like, I've been waiting to pop this one. <laughs> um, but when we talk about ABM account-based marketing, uh, account-based marketing is, is, is a, a B2B marketing tactic. And what it is, it's, it's kind of flipping what we just talked about backwards versus the, hey, I'm a B2C marketer, I want to reach a huge audience, and then in that huge audience, I'm going to call down the people who are interested in my thing. Whereas account-based marketing, ABM, is the reverse of that. It's an organization saying, I have 200 targets, and I know the companies by name, and I'm going to very specifically go after them. I'm going to, in many ways, forsake the big, uh, huge audience, and I'm going to go after a, a, a much uh, smaller target. Um, and so you can see why in a, a B2C, where you need to reach a lot of people, it's impossible to be that personalized, that tactical, that specific to, to one, uh, uh, one place. But that, that in general is, is theoretically how it's done. And I think most people would say, well, yeah, that makes sense. But there's a lot of reasons that it doesn't get done. So I'm, I'm curious, like your audience is much smaller mm -hmm. in what you're talking about. So in, in theory, you would be able to target their pain points much more specifically and like really tell them what they you think they want to hear. But on the other hand, because um, there are so few of them, maybe it requires a level of personalization that makes that actually more difficult to identify their pain points? I don't know. What do you think, Justin? Yeah, and no, I think you're spot on. There's actually a larger human capital investment in many cases to try an account-based marketing strategy than there is to go after a traditional media stream, where inherently, most media scales really well. I want to go put on television. If I decide I want to go from one market to 10 markets, yes, you have a little bit more media planning, certainly a little more buying happening there, but largely that scales up really well. Think about what we're talking about here, it, personalizing it, really creating an integrated plan, knowing the customer, aligning your valve prop to it. That is a one-to-one -one decision in many respects that, that you are making. And so human beings are deciding for that specific audience, what message do I want to deliver to them? Through what cadence? Through what media? Ultimately, how do I hand it over to the sales organization and qualify that lead and, and bring it towards um, conversion? And so it is. It's definitely a more human-intensive, harder-to-scale uh, way of thinking about marketing. 
The flip side of it, though, and, and this was sort of inherent in, in Jeff's comment earlier, the value of the client is going to be, generally speaking, orders of magnitude larger. So you think about a, a consumer, um, you're selling some consumer packaged good, that sale might be tens to hundreds of dollars. You certainly have some ability to get some repeat business there, but you think about what's the lifetime value of a customer buying an average CPG product. It's going to be small. Um, flip that into the B2B space, and um, just to use a, a, a random example, but if you're selling to somebody material handling equipment, so forklifts, so on and so forth, that might be a 50,000, 100,000 singular purchase. You can think about over the life of it, you have the opportunity to continue to, to sell deeper into that relationship to provide ancillary services. And so um, the value of the relationship and ultimately the revenue that can drive for your company is such that the investment in the human capital and, and those very personalized tactics actually really makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned personalized tactics a couple of times. We're not talking about TV. In a lot of cases, we're not talking about radio. What, what traditionally would uh, an organization who's engaging in ABM be looking at for, you know, to really execute in a, in a personalized and strong way? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different tactics. And, and you mentioned this earlier. I, I was formerly on the, the client side. And so as a decision maker, I was constantly having external providers trying to win some portion of, of my professional services budget. And so I got to see an awful lot of different organizations trying different tactics, um, largely, again, account-based marketing. Uh, and you would see some stuff that was actually really fun and creative. So just to go back to that, that notion that came up earlier, you can actually do some of the most interesting stuff inside of ABM. So I'll give you some examples of things that, that I found particularly compelling, and, and budget is absolutely part of this as to why you can, you can use these types of tactics. But um, think about elaborate, die-cut, direct marketing materials, right? So things that are three-dimensional, very high-end papers, um, video. So in some cases, and, and I think this became a little less popular over time, but you could get personalized video messages mm -hmm. um, sent to you. They would be single-use. Uh, three-minute videos, um, but in a DM package, right? So you imagine you're opening up your mail that day, and instead of an envelope with a letter in it that, quite frankly, you might give three seconds uh, glance to and decide whether or not you're interested in it, a video can be very personalized. It can be very eye-catching. You are breaking through the clutter with something like that. Yeah. Um, I did see a lot of organizations trying to use GIFs as a way in. I think that's a, an interesting and, and, in some respects, probably uh, perilous way of going about things. It's, it's <laughs> It's expensive. You bring yeah. some compliance uh, concerns into that conversation, but certainly, folks offering, give us thirty minutes, we'll we'll send you an iPad. You know those those types of of ways of trying to break through, and so you could see where people were trying to find any way to get in front of a C-suite decision maker with their particular product or solution. Um, I think inherently the amount of mindshare that an executive is going to give you is relatively finite. And so the tactics that you choose need to be very specific. I think it also speaks to you need to have the right target list to start with. Do you truly have a product and a valve prop that is distinct and valuable to that decision maker? Um, if you don't, you probably shouldn't, you shouldn't invest in that particular opportunity. Jeff, you had a, um, an example that you were talking about the other day um, that sort of reveals like just how sort of beautiful in some ways, like a, yeah. a, a thing can be that you send to a small group of people. And if you could talk more about that. I think there's a, a, the organization that we were working with was was uh, selling finishes uh, to uh, typically residential. 
Um, so really beautiful, really nice looking. You've got four people using them in some way, shape or form. Uh, and then they were trying to break into a B2B market that was institutional. Finishes, um, can you finishes, be more specific? So faucets, things okay. like that. Mm-hmm. And so they, um, there was this perception in that market that uh, these were residential, these are light touch things, they're not gonna be able to stand up to the wear and tear of having you know, hundreds of thousands of people over time using them versus just uh, uh, regular consumer residential use. And so it, what was really neat to see is some of our teams put together these, the first piece of it, of the cadence, was this huge mailer. Now granted, you're only going after a smaller group of people so you could spend more per mailer, but it was, I mean, significant, six, eight pounds, and it literally flipped out. It had one of those finishes, one of those faucets in it, and it kind of commanded two things. One, if you got to the right person, they were going to engage with it. Like, they were going to say, holy cow, what is this? And number two, it was difficult to throw out, meaning you would look at it and you would be like, ah, well, I mean, I feel bad just throwing it out. Oh, we're going to put it some, but it had some longevity. I always joke about the restoration hardware catalog. The restoration right, hardware right. You catalog. You don't want to throw it out. You don't throw it out right. because it's this thick and you're like, geez, I, I almost feel bad doing mm-hmm. it. It's kind of a book. It's kind of a book. <laughs> and it, yeah. And so, but w- what was neat about that particular campaign is going after a different market, there were follow-up pieces that were in the same image and likeness, but not as significant. So the next piece was also three three dimensional, but had a USB drive with product specs in it. And the next piece, you know, uh, kind of a follow on to that. And all of those had companion pieces of emails that went along with them to this very specific audience. And they were personalized in a couple of ways. They were personalized with not only the name of the people who were reaching out to, um, the institutions that they worked for, but also the the direct salesperson who would have been over there. Um, over their account or would have been bidding for that work. And so what was cool to see is you have a really, you know, we're we're used to talking about impressions in hundreds of millions and billions, and that ultimately culminated in, you know, a 0.3% conversion rate. Or on this side of things, you're talking about two, 300 and a conversion rate of, you know, significantly higher, 34% and of people engaging with that. And to Justin's point from before, you know, this isn't a, this isn't a purchase of candy. It's not a throwaway type of thing. If they were to get business, it would have been in the half a million to multiple millions of dollars range. And so the, the ROI on doing something really significant seemed to make sense. Um, but that was, that was a cool one. Um, I think people shy away sometimes from really meaty direct mail pieces because it's not the digital focus that we've all become so accustomed to. Nonetheless, it has a lot of sizzle, as you said. It really does. And to the creativity point, I think marketers have lulled themselves over time because sometimes B2B organizations maybe aren't as marketing sophisticated. You don't have as many people coming from those places where you're pushing the, the boundary. But the consumers within those B2B organizations who are making decisions are a B2C customer in some other respect. And they're, they're used to seeing unbelievable user experience through Amazon and Apple. They're used to feeling you know, something that's really well built like a Tesla or something like that. So I think marketers, B2B marketers specifically, have done themselves a disservice over time in not bringing some of that sizzle more deeply into it. Right, some of the, the appeal to the emotion, maybe? Mm-hmm. 
I, it, it, some of the appeal to the emotion, because ultimately, and I think this would be interesting to hear your opinion on, when push comes to shove, you're making that kind of decision on a significantly higher uh, dollar value purchase. It could mean your job. Like you go into something like that and you make a decision, sure, the logic is gonna come in, but it's gotta make you feel something for you to say, okay, this is gonna be really meaningful for us. You know, I think it's fair. I think the stakes are implicitly higher. Mm -hmm. Certainly if you're, you know, again, to your point, 500,000, a million dollars or more, um, that, it, that is nothing to sneeze at in terms of the decision that you're making. Um, I think to your other point, they are still human beings, right? So compel them in some way, create a connection to your brand, but have the proof points that sit underneath it that ultimately justify the decision. And, and I think that's true regardless of who you're talking to or across what industry or category. Um, people do want to do business with brands that they feel good about, and, and telling your story is implicitly going to do that. You also have to have the value prop that sits underneath it that, that essentially scratches that very rational itch. Because again, if you're making a decision that may put your career onto a, a very different trajectory, you're going to want to know that you have properly vetted the, the facts and the circumstances of the situation. You brought up a cool thing before, which I think people overlook in this, which is the amount of human capital commitment mm -hmm. into creating all this stuff and how much consistency is needed in order to make your, your product and your value proposition come through when you are reaching the right people. Um, so, you know, from a CMO perspective, how frequently would somebody look at that and say, we need to tweak this, we need to change it, this, this strategy needs to be retrofitted or upended. Yeah, so I think you're hitting on one of the inherent challenges of account-based marketing. Again, you think it might be a target of 50 to 500, right? This is a, a fairly finite and fairly small audience. Um, some of the things that you might traditionally think about, I'm gonna do creative testing, let's throw some AB in there, um, maybe buildings against um, some specific audience or models. You just can't do that in this space. So there's, there's a little bit of art blended with science for sure as you think about how frequently should I be looking at this. Mm -hmm. now. If you're trying to drive folks to a sales organization, uh, a lead generation page, et cetera, and you're just not seeing traffic or volume, that's probably the indication that something about the way that you are approaching this, this audience is probably not correct. But again, it's not gonna be a simple, I spend X, I get Y, I see a certain amount of conversion. Um, and in my own personal experience, some of the, uh, the businesses that we were marketing for had exceptionally long sales cycles. It yeah. could be, six to 18 plus months. And so how do you decide whether or not your ABM campaign is working when that person may not be in the market at the point in time that you're reaching out to them, um, or they might be in the market, but they might be in a very early kind of vetting and qualification stage. They may not want to be talking to uh, a relationship manager at that point. And so um, I think inherently it, it falls into a little bit of, of a gray area where you must blend the art and science of, of marketing and, and ultimately allow the program to run its course. Um, keep the CFO at bay, quite frankly, as, as they are pushing <laughs> you for you know, short-term returns, um, making sure that everybody is understood and is on board that this is going to be something that is a multi-quarter or potentially a multi-year initiative that needs to be allowed to have continued investment over time um, and not to throw the towel in after the first quarter when you haven't actually converted a customer all the way down through the funnel. So then there has to be conversations with salespeople. 100%. Right, from the beginning. Um, probably the single biggest challenge um, in the B2B marketing space compared to B2C. Handoff in B2C tends to be a little bit 
simpler. Um, and it's a little bit more uh, of a mass exercise, right? It's a volume game. Uh, certainly not the way that we're, we're typically thinking about B2B. This is a quality versus quantity. Um, you are going to have to work with the sales force. They are going to have their own opinions about who is the right target, what's the right message for that target. Um, ultimately, how do you qualify a lead sufficiently from a marketing perspective that it should get passed off into your CRM system? And so fundamentally, there is going to be a greater level of coordination, uh, integration, and ultimately negotiation that goes upfront as you are building an ABM program. And if you don't do that, um, more than likely your ABM program is going to fail. Like There must be buy-in from the sales organization if you're going to make this type of tactic work. And, and I was just going to ask, what, what role would, a, would an agency play in helping a what? business figure that out and explain it to their people? So I, I think it varies. Um, you know, some agencies who are maybe a little bit more data heavy might involve themselves in the CRM side of things. Uh, helping to manage data, helping to understand what fields are necessarily so that they can push that back into their marketing technology stack and personalize communications that go out. Uh, an agency could be involved in you know, creating those emails, a big portion of uh, a big tactic used in ABM. Um, so creating those templates, creating that content, creating the cadence of when those things go out. I think uh, the the creative, the messaging, to the point of it has to be, it has to hit some emotion, it has to be compelling. I think a lot of the times agencies are really useful in that perspective. You know, because you're in an organization, you do one thing or a couple of things, you're in the trees. Like, I mean, you, it's hard to see, it's hard to take a step out and see what is, we've said this thing about ourselves forever, you know, what's different ways that we could say it or, or, or ways that we could, we could uh, kind of uh, ping at that real problem that we're solving um, to make this a compelling act. That's one, one of the places that I think agencies can be extraordinarily compelling. But I do think with an ABM program, continuity across is a place where it's, it's extraordinarily important. Because when you are hitting somebody and you're like they are your target, and they are getting multiple of these pieces. If the messaging or the creative or the overall ethos of it doesn't feel connected and feels jagged, I think that actually does you a further disservice uh, than anything. But it, I think agencies can play, you know, some agencies like to play an end-to-end -end role. Some agencies will be, you know, single point functionality to help, to help throughout that process. Yeah, and to build upon that, I think when I was buying uh, agency resources in, in my prior life, I think one of the reasons that we would outsource versus, say, building it inside was the breadth of experience that they bring to the table. So to Jeff's point, it could be tactics. They understand this channel or this media. Um, but I also think about they understand best practices, the experience of their other clients. And so being able to bring and say to something that might be brand new for many B2B organizations, we want to launch an ABM program. We don't fully understand what that means. We have no experience at least get me through some of those early pitfalls. What are things that I should be thinking about that I don't know about? What have you guys seen with integration into, into your Salesforce in the past? How does CRM play a role in this? And then get you into, we've seen this particular type of creative work really well, or we've tried that, didn't seem to get the response that we thought it was going to, it's too expensive relative to the value. And so that been there, done that knowledge that an agency can bring, I think is incredibly helpful, particularly if you are starting down an initiative, regardless of whether it's ABM or otherwise, that you really have not deployed as a tactic before. That's a, that is a pure you don't know what you don't know moment. Yeah. And I think the agency can, in many respects, help you get from you know zero to halfway without making all of the mistakes, quite frankly, that you would have done if you tried to get there on your own.
can you speak a little bit about like the rigor that it takes for um, an ABM, you know, a process to work smoothly? I mean, I feel like we've touched a little bit on it. Like we need, you have to be rigorous in your, how, whom you target and keeping consistent messaging from beginning to end. I think the consistency is the, I mean, it's, it's a lift throughout the process and it's not something you set and forget. And so that, you know, I, I'm interested in your opinion on it, but that, that's the biggest thing is it, is it is constant nurturing. It's nurturing clients. It needs nurturing internally in order to evolve, understand what's working, and then, you know, be beneficial. Because if you don't see those things, to your point earlier of sales and marketing having some sort of friction in that process, it falls down. So you said see what's working. Is that what you would also call stress testing? In my opinion, that is so. When I consider stress testing, I you know we look at all tactics that we're we're we work in a. I said this a lot. We work in a zero perfection environment, and so when we're looking is is something working? Is an email working? What are the what are the variables that I can look at to determine that that is the case? Is it being opened? Uh, is how much time is somebody spending with it? Are they clicking links within it? Uh, are they, what's the scroll depth on something like that? Once they click a link, do they do something on the landing page that they send, I send them to? Those are things that I stress test. And you may change a subject line and say, oh, this subject line works better because more people opened it. You know, it's a, it's a little bit of a superficial metric, but it allows me to proxy to go down the road mm -hmm. to say, is this person getting at least to the meat of what I want them to see? And so as we look at, you know, the digital tactics specifically, they're, they're very nimble and they're very agile. And so their ability to not only give us back data um, that we can look at and say, hmm, I wonder if I did this, would it positively affect this really, what we think is a really important metric in this process. And so that, that's the stress testing to me. That's the, hey, we sent this out. I don't wanna get romantic about it because I wrote it. Uh, let's see if I change it a little bit or I change the verbiage or I change kind of the heart of the call to action, see if it does better. I actually, this is what I, what, something that is really intriguing to me about ABM is that it does involve that, that digital piece, mm -hmm. but also the analog piece that we were talking about earlier, and that's really cool because B2C, you don't necessarily have the analog piece at all. And Justin, you don't know this, but Nadia deeply considers herself analog. Yeah. Fantastic. Yes, mm -hmm. she considers herself analog in all things personal. Yeah, and to, to add to that conversation, I think the, the physical is actually, in some respects, the easiest to break through. Um, and get somebody's attention. So again, go back to my prior life. In a given day, I probably got somewhere between 50 and 100 unsolicited emails from vendors. Hey, check out my fill in the blank. Analytics platform, third party data, agency, video production, whatever it might have been, constantly. And, and it's not an exaggeration to say it was 50 to 100 unsolicited emails every single day. So how is that email gonna break through? If that's the first introduction that I have to your organization, 99.9% .9 of the time that thing goes straight to the trash. Delete, it, delete. It, unless for some reason um, I know you from somewhere else, and quite frankly, uh, we haven't talked about this yet, but the power of referral is obviously huge. You know, if I'm talking to a, a CMO peer that says, oh yeah, I used X and Y, they're great, that email pops in my inbox, yes, I'll give it a second look. Otherwise, it's probably going straight to the trash. Um, you think about the physical, though, those things tended to get a much higher open rate and at least got some level of engagement because they were unique and different and interesting. Um, in some cases, just because I looked at them and said, 
oh, I might want to deploy this tactic to my own B2B marketing efforts. I would look at uh, one of these little personalized videos or a really interesting die cut direct marketing piece and, and appreciate it as both a marketer and then secondarily in some cases as a decision maker that might actually be interested in their product. But that's that's the breakthrough moment more than anything else. The, the email is going to struggle to break through to a pure prospect. It's almost like neurologically it's just making a memory imprint more than you know anything the, else. The fact that we're sitting here even talking about it, I could tell you very specific companies that have sent me things over the years that I found really interesting. Um, I couldn't tell you one time that somebody sent me an email where I was like, wow, that template just <laughs> blew did. my mind. That was the one right there. Right. So yeah, there is. There's something inherently more interesting and exciting and it's tactile, tactile in nature that you get to touch the thing and interact with it. I think there is a tremendous amount of value to that. Well, I so the intent is to have several follow-on episodes of this. We've talked about, you know, uh, going deeper under the rigor of the content creation with some members of our team, as well as uh, analytics. One of the things that I believe we've touched on uh, so far. So I could tell we could go much, much longer on this, but I'm going to put a pin in this for right now and get to your previous question, which was what again? Uh, why doesn't Cleveland have a pizza by the slice? Why does? <laughs> I don't know. What was it? Pizza. We do have pizza by the side. Okay, okay. I guess we anyway, don't really fine. Have good pizza by why the isn't it sexy? That why, one? Why isn't it sexy? You know, I think that's a hard question to answer. If you think about, let's take the Super Bowl, for example. That is like the flashiest uh, moment in advertising every single year. And how many B2B brands do we see showing up? on the Super Bowl, like who's Very poning, good. nobody, right? Who's poning up six to eight million dollars for a 30 second spot and, and the millions of dollars of production. I just, inherently there's something flashy about, uh, about the B2C side of the house. And again, I do think it goes back to budgets, right? If you think about the folks that are really out there advertising consistently, um, it, it's your mega brands, right? It is, it's Pepsi and it's Coke and there's sub brands that come along with it and they have the money to go out there and do mm -hmm fascinating, fun, exciting, really edgy stuff. And um, I think typically speaking, if you're in the B2B space, your budgets are going to be a fraction of what B2C gets, and you're not going to go plop down huge money on doing something that is just wildly creative, different, um, and, and it's not going to hit your audience. Right, I, nor do you need to, exactly, nor do you, you don't need, need to. to. Nor do you need to. Like if you, just hypothetically, if you said, hey, I'm going to go do broadcast television and, and let's use, um, fixtures, again, to talk about that, like I want to sell to a commercial fixture audience. If I go on television, how much of, of the media that I just bought was wasted? Even with the best um, media and demographic information and day parts, and, and I'm going to speak specific programming and so on and so forth, 99.99% of what you just spent did not hit your audience. Um, and you could say the same thing about a lot of other media. Now, even stuff that gets more targeted, like certainly you can get closer. We're, we're in programmatic, now we're, now we're in social. Like you can get closer to that audience. Um, but if you have a clear target in your mind, and it's very finite, and I think a lot of sales organizations have exactly that. They know this is my prospect. This is where my Valprop is really aligned. This is where I can make money as an organization. Again, it's 500, not 50,000 or 500,000 or 5 million. And so some of those tactics that quote unquote are sexy are just, they don't work and they're not particularly efficient if you're trying to hit a very, very finite audience. And I think it probably helps to, just because something isn't sexy doesn't mean that it isn't beautiful, creative, 100%. effective. I think we found our new mantle to carry. Mm -hmm. Just because it's not sexy doesn't mean it's not beautiful. Right. There we go. All right. So we'll put a pin in this for today. Sounds um, good. Great conversation. Appreciate Nadia, Justin. Um, this uh, episode, like all of our episodes, will be available in multiple places. 
on our website, on our LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram channels, uh, as well as our SoundCloud. If you like it, subscribe. There's plenty of great content on there. And we uh, look for more episodes on ABM and then future series that we're looking at on MarTech. Uh, obviously, the world going cookie list, which sounds less delicious than the current world, uh, and other things to come shortly. We'll see you soon. You've been listening to The A-Game, an AdCom production. AdCom is a marketing partner in Cleveland, Ohio, creating measurable returns for our clients. Like, follow, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and find us on your favorite social networks.